Thanks for checking out this podcast from Christ Church of Ornogo. Our hope is that it helps you discover completeness in Jesus. Now for this week's teaching. Um, no, we are. We're glad to be here with you guys. And, and really, all the things that you guys have mentioned, it really is why we want to do this book. Here's what we said about Romans. We said, this book in particular sings. It's an amazing book. Like you can just read that book and you can hear the music. Leviticus is a little bit different. You know what I mean? Like when you're reading Leviticus, you're kind of just trying to figure out where to start and what is happening. Where am I? You know, uh, it feels like if you like, I was just telling Mark, this has been happening a lot lately where I keep getting woken up in the middle of the night by one of my kids crawling into bed. And I'm like, what time is it? Is it time to get up already? No, it's only like two o'clock in the morning, you know, and that's kind of what it feels like when you get into this book, because some, it's it's just disorienting a little bit, and so that's what we're going to do, is just try to unpack it, try to make sense of it, and really, we're going to try to make it sing, because here's the difference between Leviticus, you just have to mine a little bit further, the diamond is still there, this is not an arbitrary book, it really does possess beauty that we don't want you to miss, Um, one of the things really the purpose of why we are doing this class is because of how ignored this book can become. Um, in fact, Mark was sharing with me a really, what was the quote that you shared? It was like, yeah, we both just like shook our heads. Yes. <laughs> so I read this this morning. The book of Leviticus was the first book studied by a Jewish child, yet it's the last book studied by most Christians. That might indicate that there's some richness there that we're missing being Gentiles and wondering if the Old Testament is relevant to today. And it's, just, it's interesting that this book has fallen out of use. And in some ways, obviously, we're not using it as a manual like they would have been in many ways. You know? And yet, it is still one that is pointing us to Christ. Um, and really, this book, it can be misunderstood. In, in, time, in terms of trying to understand what God demands of us, right? There are, there are people, even sects of Christianity, who see Leviticus as still kind of a guidebook, a rule book of like how we should act and behave. And so they are still trying to actually uphold some of these laws in ways that, that what we believe is Jesus says, actually, I've fulfilled all of those things so that you don't have to jump through the hoops in the ways in which the, the, the initial people of Israel were called to, um, to in, in order to enjoy my presence. And I know we've said this, but it needs to be said even more, like, because this is the word of God, there are going to be things in here that challenge you. It is going to be, I love what Hebrews says, I bring it up often, that sword, the word of God, which pierces deeply. And it can be as a sword uh, slaying you, or it can be as a surgeon's scalpel performing surgery in a way in which it actually has a healing property to it. That's what we hope that you begin to see in a book like this. And to be honest with you, like Leviticus has some interesting topics. It talks about social ethics, right? It has like all of these codes about sexuality, which is a pretty hot topic in our day and age. And so part of our question, even when we come to those passages is, what does this mean for today? What, does, what do these rules have to do with what God has called us to be today? So we're going to tackle some of these things. How do we live in the world? And the other part of this is holiness. This book, you will find as you read through it, that holiness is a big deal. And so the question again becomes, what was it that made this holy? What was it? Why did, why did God set apart these people, set apart these items, set apart these rituals as ways to engage him and really be a people in the world separate from everyone else? Why? And how does that carry over to us, right? These are the questions we're trying to ask. And then obviously, most importantly, it does tell us about salvation. 
it's, it's pointing to Christ. It's telling us about Jesus. This is what Jesus is talking about. If you remember, he's walking on the road uh, to Emmaus with these disciples. He, he comes alongside them and talks about it in Luke 24. And it says this in verse 27. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Every word, every word points to Christ. And that is why this book can sing. Because the more that you understand the whole picture, the portrait that God is painting, the more it will be an invitation for you to glorify and enjoy this God forever. And that is worth understanding. Amen? That is the goal of this class. Now, <clears throat> it will at times be technical because there are technical things happening, but we're not just going to get into technical details. We really want to actually paint the portrait for you so you can see the beauty of the painting instead of the little bitty brush strokes here and there. We want you to see how the brush strokes contribute to the overall beauty of the story. And so put simply, because God is speaking, we want to ask, what does it say? Now, part of the initial question that we always have to answer is, who wrote this book, Right? And uh, what we, the position we take on this is that Moses wrote this book. That is the traditional position. Um, if you read through the book, it becomes pretty obvious that God is speaking to Moses. Um, and we believe Moses is writing the words down. Um, in fact, interestingly enough, the Hebrew name for Leviticus, it means as he called. And each chapter begins with, and the Lord spoke to Moses. If you read through the book, you can see, and the Lord spoke to Moses. This book contains more words from the mouth of God than any other book in the Bible. That means we should lean in, doesn't it? Despite what we may have to wrestle with to, to totally come to grips with what is being said, it's a pretty special thing. And so that is our goal. Let's spend just a second on authorship. Don't get caught up on thinking that Moses sat down and scribed every word. It, it could be conceivable that he dictated it to people that wrote the things down. But the reason we believe Moses is the author is there's certain things that were given to him on Mount Sinai and he was the only one up there. Nobody else would have known what was said, why it was said and how it was said, if that makes sense. So authorship is not that big of a deal to us, but what's really significant is this is coming from direct source. And Moses is that direct source in a majority of this. And then also, um, I don't think I saw it in your notes, but Jesus quotes the book of Leviticus and Deuteronomy more than any other Old Testament passage. Maybe the Psalms, but this is Deuteronomy, not... Deuteronomy, for sure. Yeah, when he talks about Scripture, and he says, you know, the Scriptures say this about me, he is speaking about the first five books of the Old Testament and how they connect. And then Elijah's going to show you how those five books are not five independent books. It's quite unique what the, the books of the Torah are doing. And so one of the things we want to do tonight is, again, we're just going to kind of take a step back... Look at, the, look at the book, look at how it fits within scripture, but also look at some of the things it's going to start to address. Uh, next week, what we're going to do is start to get into the text itself. But at least for today, we're going to, again, kind of orient ourselves to where we're at and why we're here. You know, what is the book of Leviticus doing? And how does it apply to people like you and me? Now, really, the major theme of this book, and what I would say actually is the major theme of the first five books, you've probably heard us say this before, of the, of the Torah, of the law, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Those five books, here's what they're doing. They're saying, how do we get back into the presence of God? How do we get there? Like, that's why Jesus came, and what did they call him? Emmanuel, God with us, right? 
How do we get back into the presence of God? That is what these books are talking about. And it starts off, where are they? Right? When, when, the, when Scripture is written and all things are created, where are they at? This is a test night, okay? We're asking you questions. We want you to answer. Where are they at? They're in Eden, right? They're in this beautiful, incredible garden, and they're enjoying the presence of God. And when they are expelled from the garden, nothing will remain the same. But here's what everyone knows is they still want to get eyes on God. They still long for him. There's something about who he is that they just want to see his face. They want to know who he is. And this is not just true of Jewish people. This is true of every single human who exists on this earth. There's a reason why humanity is religious. There's a reason why all people have had some sort of worship or sacrificial system that they have been a part of both in this time and even today, that there are religions all over the world because we long for him. And you know how I know that we long for him? Because if you have ever felt weak, if you have ever, ever felt the longing for peace and joy and love, you have longed for God. That's what he's talking about. How do I get into that presence? That is what Psalm 27 is talking about when, if you remember, it's the, it's the psalmist talking about how he just wants to see God. I would, spend, uh, I would spend forever just at the threshold of the temple if it means I could just be close to him. Do you remember in Isaiah 6 when Isaiah is in the throne room and his robe is filling the temple and he is just, he is in awe of what he is before them. And there's smoke that's filling the whole room. There has to be, otherwise he would be dead. And yet he actually does see God. And that's when he thinks he should be. He becomes a man undone. He says, woe is me. I'm a man of unclean lips. And then he's purified in that moment to be able to stand in the presence of God. And it changes him because he sees God in a way that he will never remain the same. That is what every single person in this world wants and longs for. To behold the wonder of God and be changed and enjoy his presence forever. That's what these, this book is addressing. And when they're in the Garden of Eden, what happens is they end up doing something that ultimately makes their relationship with God estranged. They're being sent away from God because sin has crept in. Death has crept into the world now. And it's going to be like a cancer. Now, that's an important thing to note. It's going to be like a cancer because that cancer is going to spread in degrees. And if you can actually see this in the book of Genesis when you're reading it, that the way in which God interacts with his people becomes farther and farther apart. Even with Adam and Eve, after it happens, what does he do? He clothes them with what we assume to be some sort of animal skin, which means he had to put something to death in order to clothe them to cover their shame. But he still was talking to them, wasn't he? Then they had children. What were their names? Cain and Abel. And he was talking to them. And what did they do? They gave sacrifices to God. They had some sort of communication with God still. It just wasn't the same as being able to live forever with God in this holy, uh, sacred, special place. Now, if you keep reading the book of Genesis, I, I'm telling you, what you will find is that distance continues to become greater and greater as it moves from Cain and Abel to, to Noah to Abraham. Abraham has these encounters with God and they become less and less as, as time goes on and as that cancer spreads more and more and more. And so the point of what we're seeing is that sin has this separating effect. It's moving us away from God. And that is what the whole first five books of the Bible are trying to address how is, how is this going to be fixed? How can we get back to God? How can we see his face once more? 
And that's what I want you to see as we look at the story that really Leviticus is showing us the story of God. That's what all scripture is doing. It's pointing us to God as the main character, right? When we read Abraham about Abraham and Moses and David, they are a protagonist in the story. But at the end of the day, the main character always remains God. He's using them for a purpose. And that's one of the, the cautions I even give to, to people when I'm, when I'm helping them understand Scripture is that when we read the Bible, don't we always see ourselves in it? Like we're like, oh, I'm like Abraham. I just need to have faith. Oh, I'm like Moses. I just need to stand up for, for, for righteousness. Oh, I'm like David. I just need to slay my giants. And listen, I think it's an amazing thing when, when we can understand what God can do when his presence is in our life. But we are not the main character either. God is. He always will be. And he's moving this story in a way to make people like us who were enemies, friends. We are the antagonists. We are the obstacles. We are part of the enemies of God that make up both the, the, the people who have become hindrances to a world that is supposed to be whole and have peace. And yet we become part of the problem with the, with the demons and with sin and death. And we've become part of really instruments and agents of, those, of these sin that has distorted the world. And so what we're trying to show you, at least what Leviticus is trying to do, is trying to say, God has actually made a way for you to get back into his presence again. It's actually made a way for this presence to be enjoyed uh, once more. So I think the, the key for all of us is our worship is not something that we have to give God to make him like us, to become acceptable to him. It's actually our heart's call is to have a relationship with God, not to be distant. And, and Elijah's right. And uh, we both have read a book that's been instrumental in our clarity within this. It just talks about how from Genesis at the very beginning, this close relationship with God, and man has been walking away from God ever since, trying to create their own spaces and their own methodology. They're trying to do it their way, hoping it's acceptable to God, but they're trying to do it without him. And what's beautiful about this is you're going to see that even the restrictions and rules that God puts in place in his law is actually to allow us to have more of him, not less. It's not you go do this and then maybe I'll come like you. Uh, I think the thing that's most encouraging for me from a stand, uh, pastoral standpoint is for each one of us to know that there is nothing God requests of us that does not draw us closer to him. And there's nothing he forbids from us that does not draw us closer to him. So he's not restrictive in the sense that God's angry and this is what we get when we mess up. Uh, I think you just said something in kind of a tag phrase, whether you meant it specifically or not, but you're like, no, man is always getting away from God and God is always inviting them back. He's keeping relationship. He's moving heaven and earth to be close to us. So I know we're going to keep reminding you of this over the next few weeks. So I hope it doesn't become tired. But if you start repeating what we're saying in advance, we're teaching well. Because the ultimate goal is not for you to remember what we said, it's to remember why we're saying it, and then you'll begin to see in the law. So write your questions down, because he just gave us a hook. This is always going to be about God. You might ask us one week, I was reading in chapter 6, how is that about God? And that would be a good way to think about your reading in the next few weeks. So here's what I want to do, is I want to look at Leviticus, how how it is situated in Scripture, okay? So I want to remind you that when it was written... It, what we are saying is it was written as a part of a book of a one, one book of five, right? Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. And this book became known as the Torah. It became known as the law. It became a central, uh, a central place for the nation of Israel to understand how they enjoy the presence of God. 
how they can get close to him and, and, and really experience the benefits and blessings of what God had promised them. So here's what I want to do. I want to show you this. Because one of the things that we believe is that Leviticus actually forms the very center part of these five books that they're actually all leading up to Leviticus. Leviticus is not just the center of the books. It's actually the most important part of what, of what Moses and really God communicating to Moses, Moses communicating to the people, what he wants them to know is that Leviticus becomes the way in which we see God's culminating act of inviting them back into his sacred space. And so if you can see Genesis, it talks about the separation from the nations, right? We, we remember Abraham being separated from the Tower of Babel. We remember the blessing that Abraham received. And, and then ultimately, um, Abraham going toward that land uh, and having his descendants grow and expand. Exodus shows Israel's desert journeys. If you remember this, right? Moses ultimately frees the people of God by the power of God, and they move into the, into the desert, but then there's all kinds of plagues and apostasy and things that happen within the people of Israel that continue to plague them because of their unbelief, because of the sin that's still in their midst, um, that there's Pharaoh, Pharaoh and magicians that, that are essentially defeated, and then the firstborn son and all the things that would, uh, that would happen to cover those, those things, and the Levites are established. Now, Leviticus is, again, what we come to when we see both all the laws, but also all the, the callings to be holy and the ways in which they can be holy. They can be set apart from the nations. They can be set apart from Egypt. They can live the life that God had called them to. Numbers, we start to go back the other way. You, there's a lot of symmetry, actually, between Exodus and Numbers if you compare those books together. When it talks about just how big the nation of Israel has grown, it talks about the beginning of Exodus and even at the beginning of Numbers. And it talks about their journeys through the wilderness once more. It talks about uh, how, how there's apostasy and plagues that break out even against the people of Israel because of their sin. And it talks about Balak and Balaam and the things that happened. There's, there's all this symmetry. And then Deuteronomy, again, has this parallel structure with Genesis where there's this separation from the nations, uh, from, of the people of Israel, not just Abraham, but the people of Israel. And they are looking at the land. They're about to go into the promised land, the thing that they have been waiting for all this time. They're about to experience the blessing of all that they have and, and experience uh, the, the fruit of what God had promised. See, all of these things, they, there's the symmetry from Genesis and Deuteronomy. There's a symmetry in Exodus and Numbers. And it all is funneling toward Leviticus to have them see, here's how you act once you're in the land. Here's how you enjoy my presence. Here's how you enjoy the fruit and the blessings and the promises of all that there is. So he used terminology there that said we are set apart from, right? But every time we're set apart from something, it's because we're being set apart for something. Does that make sense? So when every time, once again, when God restricts us, it's for a purpose that's greater than what we're giving up or we're staying away from. Now, I'm also seeing some of you blowing tendons out in your hands, trying to copy everything down on the screen. So if you're one of those people who want to have every possible note, all you have to do is email me. My email's on the webpage and we will get you copies of this. If it saves you, you can, you could tape it right into your journal and save you from blowing a wrist out on Wednesday night. This all actually right. is all on the website as well. We have a class on the website that has Leviticus and it has all these in them. And in fact, the, my last slide is a, is a QR code that will lead you to, to this as well. Just for, so just in case for you who are hand models, you know, uh, we, we want to save you from that. So, <laughs> um, so here's what I want to look at next. This is the tabernacle. This is the thing that they would 
they would unpack, right, as God moved through the wilderness, as God was bringing them to the promised land. They would unpack it, they would build it, and this would be the place where God dwelled, okay? So that's kind of where we're at. So if you remember, uh, God had given Moses the blueprints for a plan like this when he was on Mount Sinai. But here's what I want you to do. I, I need you to track with me because this is, at one level, it's an amazing thing, but at the second level, you have to really follow the train of thought to, to see the total picture, okay? So come with me. All right, I want to, you bring you back to the Garden of Eden, okay? Now, here's what people say. They say the Garden of Eden, it was actually a temple. It wasn't one built by hands. It was one built by God, and he dwelled there. That's where Adam lived and enjoyed a life with him. He was, in some ways, a priest cultivating the land, enjoying all the parts of what God had offered never having to make or, or have some sort of rituals or sacrifices because there was nothing to sacrifice for. He just enjoyed God. And what people think actually is that Eden was on top of a mountain. And they think this because somehow these rivers of Eden not just flowed down into the garden to, to nourish it and make it grow, but out even into the plains around them. And if you remember, when they were kicked out of the garden, there was um, angels that were there guarding the way to back into that place where God's sacred space was, where God dwelled, where God lived, where God once walked with man. Now, here's what I want you to see. Uh, for the, the first aspect of this is that if you look through Scripture, what you will find is that when people wanted to get close to God, they often went on top of a mountain. That's where they would go. And this was true not just of Israel. This was kind of true of pretty much everybody. They had this idea that the closer they got to the, the, the place where they thought God was, where the stars were and all those things, that they actually had an access to God that was more significant than usual. And in many ways, it could be, in fact, that they believed this because of Eden being on a mountain in the first place. Now, they'd go up onto these mountains, and this is where they would commune with God. And we see this even throughout the Old Testament. Noah's ark lands on top of a mountain. Abraham goes on top of a mountain to make a sacrifice and he hears from God. Moses goes on top of a mountain and he receives the law and the blueprints and all those things. So we have this interesting space where there is a distinction, a separation between this holy high place up here and the low place down here. This is the place where man is, where just animals are, where they live and move and they run around and they get dirty and they make mistakes and they fail. But when you get on top of the mountain, everything changes. And we see this most clearly in Mount Sinai, right? When Moses gets the law and a cloud surrounds the mountain and there's lightning and there's thunder and there's all these in insane, scary things happening. In fact, there was one moment, even when the people of Israel, they, they hear and see God through these, this, his glory in the cloud. And he said, hey, you go talk to him because we don't want to be anywhere near that. He goes on top of the mountain and he talks to God. Now, what a lot of theologians believe is that the tabernacle is actually a space that has been recreated in this same way. You see, God comes down off the mountain. This is how he gets to be with his people. He comes down and he allows them to build a tabernacle that still has this symmetry to that same sort of, of place. And so the outer court, which you can see, um, you know, it's, it's kind of on the outside of, that, of, the, of the tabernacle there. Um, that's the world. That's the, that's the valley. That's where, 
that's where the normal people run and, and make mistakes and, and eat and hunt and all those things. But when you get in sacred space, it starts to happen. You're getting a little bit closer to the holy. And as you get closer and closer, all of a sudden, God becomes so much heavier that he starts to weigh on that space. And when you get inside, what you begin to see even is this cloud. This is what it talks about when a cloud fills the Holy of Holies, just like it did on the top of Mount Sinai. That there's actually this space where you go onto the mountain and then you go into the summit where God comes to dwell, where the cloud comes and he allows his presence to dwell so that you are not shattered completely. Blocked, veiled by this smoke. He said, this is actually a way in which the tabernacle was built to show you at one level that God has come near to you in the valley, but at another level, you still have to move to the summit to experience him. Move through these layers of getting to the actual sacred space. Now, the interesting thing as well is if you look at Eden, um, if you look at where Eden begins, it's, if it's on a mountain, right? The farthest place from a mountain to the ground is a grave. Genesis begins with Eden, but it will end with a grave. It will end with Joseph being buried and then wondering what will come next for the people of Israel. There's this separation, this dichotomy that is happening. And here's what it's trying to show you is that the grave death is the total polar opposite of where God is life in the summit. And there is a way in fact, God has made a way for you to get a little bit closer, for each person to come just a little bit more near to the Holy of Holies and to experience the joy, the love, the peace, the hope that you long for in this relationship with this God. Now, of course, the question becomes, how does that relationship begin? And that's where the covenants come into play. But before I get into that, do you want to add any more? Because I'm just talking up here. No, it's good stuff. Um you want to have some fun, read your Old Testament and look at mountaintop experiences. We use that term for a reason. And I just want to remind you, the tabernacle was God's mobile home in the garden. When they were coming, I mean, it was the garden mobile home. And when they left Egypt and went through the wilderness, God had them build this place that was sanctified so his presence could come to us because we couldn't go to him. He, he mentions Abraham takes Isaac on the mountain to offer him as a sacrifice. That mountain would later be purchased by King David. A threshing floor would be purchased on that spot, and the temple would be built there in Jerusalem. That's why in your New Testament, it always says they went up to Jerusalem or they came down from Jerusalem. The mountain imagery, if, if, you, just, if you disconnect the Old Testament, many of the insights of the New Testament are lost. But just think about this. The God meets us on mountaintops that he has purified for, for us to join his presence. And the tabernacle was God's mobile home, an epitome of the Garden of Eden to show you how God is still giving us a chance to draw close to him and be cleansed from our sin. So it's, it's, it's good stuff. The, the whole issue of covenant is probably the most interesting part of the connection for Leviticus for me. Uh, one, one thing that I think is special too that I want to point out is if in Revelation, uh, when John is in Revelation, Revelation 21, an angel brings him up to the highest, to, to a mountain and God is not there. He looks out into the valley and what does he see? That's where he sees God. God no longer is on the mountaintop. He comes down, he's with his people. There's a throne there. There's a river of life. 
and there's all the people of God with him. It's a beautiful image. And again, has this, it's coming back to these sorts of images uh, where our distance between us and God um, is finally fully realized when he returns. Now, one more thing I want to point out too, is when we look at inside the Holy of Holies, you can actually see some of this, uh, the imagery again, how it parallels that garden. Okay. So for instance, the menorah there, uh, that, that's supposed to be a sort of tree. Uh, and really what people think is it was built based off of the tree of life, that idea of, uh, of it being uh, uh, still there in the presence, reminding people where life is found. And that's what really light, even when it's lit up, that's what the light is, is trying to show, that there's life in this place. And that light, it actually shows, it brings light onto the rest of everything in that space. There's the, the bread on the other side of that menorah. It's on the north side there, what would be the north side. And that bread, it has 12 uh, loaves of bread that symbolize the people of Israel. And what they would do is they would make the, that bread every week. They'd put it there. We're going to talk more about this later, but they would put that there to symbolize the people of Israel. And then <clears throat> they have on uh, the west side there, that little little tower that you can kind of see there, that is the incense where they would burn incense. That would create the smoke. It would create the fragrance and it would create all of that, that, um, the smell and the space in which God could come and dwell and be in the Holy of Holies, that space right beyond the curtain there uh, where the Ark of the Covenant is. And he would come and dwell in that space. And, uh, and that incense would help cover, again, shield the people that were there. And only one person got to go into the Holy of Holies. We'll talk about this. Uh, but, <clears throat> but that is all there trying to, sh again, showcase a, a level of garden imagery of the life, of the life and the in the menorah of the tree of life, the, the incense, which is not creating fragrance of, of, again, just of what flowers and vegetation would have been like, what, what even speaking with God is and as it images with prayer. And then the bread is the sustenance that that garden would have created. <clears throat> now, the interesting thing, too, is the veil. And you've probably heard this before, perhaps. I know that it's something that I bring up all the time because the first time I heard it, it blew my mind. The veil is woven with purples and blues, these royal colors. But embroidered on it are angels guarding the way. This is, again, that garden image where angels were guarding the way to the Holy of Holies, the place, the sacred space where God dwelled. And when Jesus dies on the cross, what, is, what do the gospels say? That the veil was torn in two. The way to God was opened up. More than that, God came, was able to come to us. It's not that we were now finally get to go to the temple and go inside. No, we had been purified to such an extent that God could come live in us. That's what Leviticus is pointing to. The way in which we become the temple of God. This dwelling place for his holy presence. We become the sacred space. And this is all, part because, all in part because of the covenant. This is the way in which God enters into relationship with us. Now we can finally get there. The Ark of the Covenant <clears throat> was a, the Ark of the Covenant because it was the place where they held these documents. The law is where they put them. The, the law really was the promises God had made, the covenant. And so here's what I want to do. I want to talk about what a covenant is. And here's what a covenant is. It's a bond by which promises are made, conditions are understood, and relationship is secured. The bond by uh, <laughs> the, a bond by which promises are made, conditions are understood, a relationship is secured. Now, the closest thing that we get to, you probably heard this a lot, the closest thing that we get to when we think of a covenant and trying to understand what that means is a marriage. 
And I, here's the thing. I talk about a covenant pretty much in every class, especially when we talk about the Old Testament, because it is the foundation on which the Bible rests, all right? Because here's what it is. It's God making a promise. And once God makes a promise, it has to happen because God cannot lie. That's what Hebrews says. That's why Hebrews says that, that every word of God is like an anchor buried so deeply into the ground that nothing will be able to shake it. That's why he says that's what our hope can be like, an anchor that will never be moved because it's based off of the word of God and God cannot lie. And so when we hear God, when we hear about this idea of a covenant, we need to lean in. What is God saying? What is he binding himself to? What promise is he making that he says, I will never not fulfill that promise? That's what the covenants are pointing us toward. <clears throat> and there's lots of them. And covenants are not Bible ideas. Uh, they are just, they really, they were all over the ancient Near East. <clears throat> In fact, they're part of the reason why we know Moses wrote some of these books because they represent some of the relationships that had been established at the time that we believe that Moses wrote these books. They actually confirm a lot of what we believe about his authorship and involvement within them. And what they begin to tell us is the same sorts of things that you would see on a stage like this. And I'm sure, again, I've said this a hundred times, but on this stage, I was married and I exchanged vows with my wife. We, were, we made promises to each other and there were conditions to those promises, which was basically nothing except for death. That was the only thing. It wasn't going to be money. It wasn't going to be health, right? It was promises made to each other that we were going to be faithful to one another. And it was a covenant that we made. And the relationship was secured. Now, this is an important thing to understand. My covenant with my wife was not something that just happened that day the first time I met her. I, it secured the relationship. It did not create the relationship. When God makes a covenant with us, it's not God coming and saying, all right, um, you are now going to be in a relationship with me. No, God has already started the relationship with them. And then he secures it by a promise. He, he involves himself in the lives of people. And then he says, you know what? I want to make a promise to you about how this relationship is going to happen from here on out. And so there are some major covenants that are created in scripture. And here they are. There's the Noahic covenant, the Abrahamic covenant, the Mosaic covenant, and the Davidic covenant. The truth is there's more covenants than that. But these are the main ones. These are the ones you need to know. And I'm going to sum, summarize them very quickly because... I could be long-winded about all these things, and so I'm going to do them quickly, I promise. <clears throat> the first one is the Noahic Covenant. We all know that one, right? That's the one where God floods the earth, and he's already, he's already made a relationship with Noah, right? He already, they're already, he's already on a boat, you know? <laughs> and he saves him, and he saves his family. And then after the fact, what does he do? That's when he makes the covenant. That's when he makes the promise. And the promise is, I'm not going to do this again. And in fact, I'm going to restrain my wrath so that from all humanity, not only so that I don't do this again, but also I'm going to restrain humanity so that it never gets that bad again, so I have to. Those are the promises he makes. And he gives them a sign for those promises. What is it? A rainbow. That's right. The Abrahamic covenant is the, is the one that is probably the most important of all of them. And that is because what Galatians tells us, what we learned about in Romans, I hope you remember, was that part of what Jesus was fulfilling was that Abrahamic covenant. He was the seed of Abraham. He was the one that was going to provide life for all people and be a blessing to the nations and fulfill all, the, all of those promises that God made to Abraham. He was really the one in which all of those things culminated. And how was that one sealed? Remember, what was the sign of that one? You guys don't want to say it. It's okay. Circumcision. 
<laughs> right? We talked about circumcision and the fact that this was a sign. It was a good sign. It's an awkward sign for us, but it was a good sign for them because every single time they procreated, they would remember this is a part of how God is actually fulfilling his promise to make us into a people that are as expansive as the stars in the sky and the sand by the sea. And God is, God is fulfilling his promise even in this moment. And it became a promise for, for them about what God was going to do, the land that they would enjoy and the blessing that they would be to the world. Now, the, Mo, the Mosaic Covenant, <clears throat> this is the one where they go up on Mount Sinai. And this is the one that is most closely associated with Leviticus when, he goes, when uh, Moses goes up on Mount Sinai, he receives these laws. He receives all of these things from God. And he said, I'm going to be your God. If anybody messes with you, I'm going to mess with them. And I'm going to have you do things to create a sacred space amongst you as a holy people. I'm going to call you to be a holy people. And you know what the sign of this covenant was? The Sabbath. The Sabbath. That was the sign of this covenant. The Davidic covenant was made in 2 Samuel 7, and this is why everyone was looking for a Messiah. This is why the Jews were like, when is the Messiah going to come? Because they remember this promise. When God made the promise like this, they were waiting for, for the Messiah to come and fulfill the promise. Part of the promise was, to David, to David was, well, at one level, there's going to be a king on your throne. There will be a king on your throne from your line, and it will be a sign to you of the fulfillment of that promise. Jesus becomes that king. Jesus has his seat. Jesus fulfills that promise. But there's another promise that, that actually God makes to David. Do you remember what it is? David says, God, I'm going to build you a temple. I'm going to make you a sacred space because you don't deserve to be in a tent like that, like some, uh, what did you call it? Mobile a mobile home. He said, I'm going to make you a palace just like I have, but better. It's going to be beautiful and ornate. And God says, David, I love your heart. Bless your heart, right? But no, you won't be doing that. I'm going to build you a temple. That's what God does in us, through us. He builds the temple. He builds the sacred space. And it's us. And we get to part of build, being a part of building that temple as well. Oh my gosh, 15 minutes. I said I was going to be short, but no. All right. Let's see, where do I want to go from here? Okay, here's the, here's the issue with a covenant. God creates a relationship with him, and then he secures that relationship by a covenant, and he makes all these promises, and he talks to Israel, and he says, here's how you live and enjoy the presence of this covenant, the presence of this relationship. But he, what happens? They don't. They keep compromising the covenant. All the covenants just, they have this kind of lingering, like, when are you going to fulfill your promise, God? And he's like, well, I want to, but actually you're the ones who are leaving me. You're the ones who are going off and, and, and being an adulterous nation. You're the ones that are leaving the land. You're the ones that are, are associating yourself with people who are letting sin and cancer and that death destroy their societies. I want to fulfill my promise, but actually you're the one who's leaving so that it's, it's not possible. And so what does God say? A better covenant is needed. A better covenant is needed. This is what he says in Jeremiah 31, 31. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and I will write on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. You see, the new covenant, the one that we've been waiting for and longing for is not a law that will be written on stone. It'll be a law that is written on our hearts. It will change us fundamentally, not because we have the rule book, but because we have God. He has taken up residence in us. 
He has made a sacred space. And this is what Jesus institutes at the Last Supper when he takes the, the chalice and he says, this is my, my blood poured out for you. And he takes the bread. He says, this is my body broken for you. These are the symbols of the new covenant that now you're a part of. He has secured your relationship with him because of the blood of Christ. He has purified your lives and made you sacred space. This is what he wanted to do from the very beginning. Now, why God did it in this way, I don't know. But it seems to be working out pretty well. But here's the point of what he was calling them to be. We see it in Exodus 19, 5 through 6. It says, Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. This is what he was calling them to be. This is what the covenant was calling them to be. Holy. This is a major theme throughout Leviticus, holiness. Now, here's the best illustration, the best analogy that I've ever heard about in terms of holiness is actually one that Beth DeFazio first gave in Kids Club. It was awesome. I was like, I'm sure maybe you've heard this before, but when I first heard it, I was like, that is so good. <laughs> now, I don't know if those kids knew how good it was, but that's the thing. It's like, I've tried to ask my son these questions and what all he does is when he come home, he said, I don't know, you know, have you ever had that experience? So holiness, what is it? Imagine you have a toothbrush. What you do with that toothbrush is you set that toothbrush aside. It's set apart for a very specific purpose, right? It is only to be used for your mouth. If it hits the floor, you can wash it, right? It's still useful. That's fine. You can do what you got to do. He's like, no. Hey, we all have different make, levels of purity, They right? make them every day. <laughs> But that's the idea, that you are setting something apart uh, to be used for a very specific function. And that is what God has done with this people. He has gone to them and saying, I'm going to set you apart to be um, utilized for a very specific purpose. But more than that, to enjoy a relationship with me in a very unique and, and amazing way. Now, there's a difference. What we want to make sure we understand, especially in Leviticus, is that there is a difference between holiness and purity. Now, sometimes we equate those two things. Sometimes when we think of holiness, we think of something virtuous or ethical. We think of holiness as being something that possesses within it this idea of, you know, oh, all holier than thou, you know, somebody who, <clears throat> who just lives a life of total righteousness and goodness and, and, and they sometimes can lord it over others, right? <laughs> but that's not what holiness is. Holiness is just something being set apart. Now, it's true, actually, that in terms of when God makes something holy for himself, it does possess a level of virtue, a level of ethical and goodness and purity. It does. But it's not because that's what holiness is in and of itself. That is because when God sets it aside for himself, it must only contain what he himself has, pure goodness, love, truth, purity. And so when he sets the people aside to be holy, that is what he calls them to do purity becomes different then. So now I want to tease out this definition of, of holiness and purity, okay? So let's imagine you have your toothbrush and you're brushing your teeth and it falls on the ground. And you're like, dang it, again? And you pick it up and you, you know, you put it under the sink and you wash it off. You're like, it, it's fine. It'll be all right. The fluoride will kill it, I'm sure, right? Well, let's say that you are at, at home and, and you're brushing your teeth and all of a sudden, you drop your toothbrush again, but this time it hits the counter and it falls in the toilet. Well, maybe it's still redeemable for some of you. I don't know. But what if, what if 
you have a four-year-old like I do. And sometimes that four-year-old does not flush the toilet. And all of a sudden, you see not just that your toothbrush has fallen in a toilet, but a poopy one. That there's brown, muck, nasty, all up in it. Can that toothbrush ever become holy again? Now you're seeing what sin does to us. 30,000 foot view from Leviticus. You have to take your sin seriously. You're leprous. You touch somebody. You can be made, you can be made pure again. You have a discharge of blood or pus. That can be made pure again. You kill someone. You have an affair. Sin is serious. You cannot be purified again. You see, when you read the book of Leviticus, one of the things you will find is that every burnt offering, every guilt offering is not for intentional sins. It's for unintentional sins. There was only one punishment for intentional sins, things that you did and you meant to do it. You were either killed or you were excommunicated from the people of the holy the sacred space. That is what Jesus did for you. I will become excommunicated. I will bear the punishment. I will be killed. I will take it upon myself. That my blood might purify a people who would become a sacred, holy space. That is the gospel. That is what Leviticus will invite us to see and behold at each moment. This is what Hebrews 10 says. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us. For after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. Then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he has opened up for us through that curtain, that is through his flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith. With our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Now, I know that's a long text, but I hope you see how it brings all of this together. That's what Leviticus is going to do. That's what we hope to do every single week, is to bring to life this book, not just in what it meant to the Jews, but how it is now reinterpreted through the life and death and the resurrection of King Jesus. Now, before we end, we need to do the outline, but since I've talked so much, I'm gonna let you do it. Oh yeah, I was like, what is this? <laughs> uh, so that top part is basically, you know, that, that calling for this, these priestly people, this holy people. And uh, this is what God desired them to be in the new covenant. Chapters 1 through 17 kind of reflect that, that, that priestly responsibility. 
What did it mean when God said, you're going to be priests for me? Well, chapters 1 through 17 kind of demonstrate that. Chapters 18 through 27 reflects the holy living aspect of that. When he says, you're going to be holy, a holy nation, what does he mean by that? Well, chapters 18 through 27 kind of reflect that. So this is kind of a 30,000 foot view of the book of Leviticus. Now, what I didn't put on there, which I should have put on there, was that Leviticus 16 is the very most important chapter of this book. It is the center of the book. And everything else kind of actually breaks off from it. It, it, it goes in one, like, if it, there's another way that I heard characterized. The first half of the book is blood, <laughs> and the second half of the book is holiness. And actually, even though we think of blood and we think ill, it actually, blood is what purifies. Um, blood is the life of, of something. And so actually, what we're seeing again is that it's all kind of culminating to Leviticus 16. Just like Leviticus is the culmination of the first five books of the Bible, where it's actually kind of moving inward um, toward, toward there, like a funnel to Leviticus. That's what it's doing at Leviticus 16 as well. It's trying to amplify that chapter. And that chapter is called the Day of Atonement. And so that is the one in which we believe really uh, correlates to what all scripture is going to lead to in the sacrifice, the death of Jesus. Now, this is what our class is going to look like. This is what we're going to try to cover each week. And obviously, we're not going to go, you know, we're not going to be able to read this like, you know, verse by verse, okay? So maybe that is like very, you know, helpful for you or exciting for you because you're like, if we had to do this verse by verse, then I think that I might go try a different class. But we're going to, again, pull out the themes, pull out what's happening, and hopefully uh, draw the pictures together and how they connect. And so this is what we're going to go through each week. And this will bring us all the way uh, to right before spring break. And that will be our, our final class together. So your homework is to read in your journal or in your Bibles the first seven chapters. Try to read it two or three times before you come back next week. So when we jump from piece to piece, you'll know what we're talking about and it won't be foreign to you. And use your journals well. Highlight, that's the best place to find your questions. What does this mean? This doesn't make sense. Uh, but we want you to do that. And then, of course, we'll all memorize Leviticus chapter 16 and recite it in front of everybody on a given Wednesday nights. Just be excited about that too. Again, if you need any of like what we're going to be after to, or uh, want to revisit any of these slides. They're all going to be, you can scan that QR code. You can go to the website. They're all going to be there. Um, but ultimately, we're going to be going through this each week. And what we want you to do is actually use those journals to try to keep track of some of this if you can, uh, because we think that'd be a good central location. But overall, as always, this class, everything we do here is, is pointing to the gospel. It's pointing about what's been done through Christ, his death and resurrection. And that's what we hope to really bring to life each week. Um, so, Hey, let's hear it for this guy. It's pretty smart, isn't he? Yeah. I know he hates this, but his ability to condense uh, major theological themes in little five-minute snippets is a gift. And uh, I sure appreciate it. And I also think we should now give out toothbrushes to everybody baptized, don't you? I think that would be a symbol that would resonate. I really do, because now I'm grossed out forever by it. Uh, I want to pray for us. I'm going to back up. This is a commercial about why we exist as a church. And because you're partnering with us in ministry, serving others and growing together in body, it's very, very important. This is not an infomercial. It's not comparing to any other church, but you know that led by the elders of our congregation, our purpose is to help you find your completeness in Jesus. I hope when we're done, not only are you comfortable in the book of Leviticus, but you see how this helps you find completeness in Jesus. It, this is not a one-off. This is a very particular. The classes we teach, 
We want to show you that the work that God has been doing in our filth to draw himself back into our world so that we can have availability of him and how Jesus is the culmination of all that. Because when you read Leviticus chapter 16, the day of atonement, your mind will take you to the cross, to the, to the blood, to the resurrection, to the ascension. It all comes together, all comes together. It's, that's a type of what Jesus would do. And so what I love about the Bible is our theme here to help you find your completeness in Jesus or to have completeness in Jesus is not a one-off. It is what the scriptures are trying to do for every single one of us. And that's what'll make this rich. Now, he brought something up. We know that when spring break comes, we're just, this is pulling back the curtain so you can see Oz is a little green man, all right? The reason we're only taking this class to spring break is because we know that the pattern in the spring is when spring break hits and we all go away or get out of here for the weather or whatever you get to do if you get to take a vacation at that time. When we come back, there's spring sports, there's school activities, there's graduation. Life hits us really hard in the month of April. We're going to have a class that follows this one, but we wanted you to be aware. And I also want to entice you with this. Hold on for the nine weeks. This is week one. There'll be a thousand reasons not to come back and stay disconnected. I'm going to encourage you. Stay with it. Not because we get paid by the head, because we don't, but we really believe that this is so worth digging in together in community, because I think something happens in community you can't get in your own private independent study. And so we're looking forward to sharing that with you, and we hope that we'll encourage you and that you'll encourage us back. Remember the cards, fill those out if you have any questions, we'll do our best to answer them. I'm going to pray for us, and then uh, we'll be dismissed for tonight. God, thank you that you had a plan that is so beautiful to see in hindsight. That when you were talking to Noah or you were talking to Abraham or Moses or David, many, many others, um, in that moment, they didn't understand how intricately involved this was with all the other things. Maybe they did, but I wouldn't have. And I'm very grateful that you've helped us see how the story of the Old Testament brings us to the fruition in Jesus and how the church then becomes the fruit on that tree and that we are to be a people that are not only blessed, but we're a blessing that we are priests, that we serve others and draw them close to the presence of God. And we're grateful for all that you've done in this. Father, give us, give us clarity when we're together, when we read, when we pray, help us to be uh, faithful. There's going to be a thousand reasons for all of us to find something else to do on a Wednesday, but I pray that you will uh, bless us with a concentration and a commitment that we can walk out of here understanding you have woven this together in such a beautiful, beautiful way. Complex, yes, but actually simple in its complexity, and that's, that's a gift. Thank you for your Holy Spirit that will teach us things, that will speak to us, will draw conviction and draw healing. We're grateful for that. Uh, but most of all, Father, we, we breathe your air today. We live in your world. You've provided everything we've needed. And uh, you are a good father. You are a good provider. And we're grateful for all that you've done with us, for us, the things we know and the things we haven't even figured out yet. I, I pray a blessing that we get good rest tonight, uh, that we awaken tomorrow with an opportunity to share your glory with somebody. And we pray all of these things because we believe it's your will. And we pray it by the power of Jesus' name. Amen. All right, we are dismissed. Thank you. Thanks again for checking out this podcast from Christ Church of Ornogo. We hope that this teaching is helping you discover completeness in Jesus and encourages you to help others do the same. 
If you're interested in learning more about Christchurch, visit us online at cco.church.